All right, folks, the pace, the place, and the race, chariots of fire. I want to put a slide up, and I want to ask you if you know what it is. Look at this slide. This slide represents how to be ready to run a marathon 26.2 miles in 18 weeks. Now, I only put up through week 15, because by the time you get to week 15, you've crossed the highest mountain. Now, what that means is you run three miles on Monday, Tuesday, well, actually, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You take Friday off, Sabbath off. You run seven miles on Sunday. By week two, you haven't had to go far. But by week five, you can see that one run on Sunday is growing. And that run grows, slowly grows the rest, and your body conditions itself. And pretty soon, believe it or not, even you could run a marathon. This is Hal Higdon's plan. Nike has its own plan. I kind of like its quote. Nike says, the goal of this plan isn't to get you across the finish line. It's to get you across the finish line, the best version of you. That's what they're trying to get across the finish line. Now, there's something about running that captures the mind of most people. When we're young, we love to run. When we're old, not so much. And truth of the matter is, you don't love running unless you do a lot of running. But once you do a lot of running, your body actually adapts and you get to the place where it is very wonderful and you enjoy it. A lot of people never stick with it that far. These are pictures of the Chicago Marathon. 45,000 people sign up. It's gotten to where they don't even let everybody sign up that wants to sign up. If you want to be in it, it's a lottery. And so now you have to apply. Bible says that not all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. They do it for a perishable crown, but we're doing it for one that does not perish. I don't know why my text is off the screen here. It says, but we're not to run aimlessly. And Paul says, I don't box as if I'm beating the air. But he keeps his body under control, lest after preaching to others, he himself should be a castaway. And what's the point of running the race? Well, it's to get here. You want to cross the finish line. Sometimes you have to walk to get there, but it's worth it. And when you do, you feel very, very relieved. Now look at all the emotion in this picture. Obviously, the center of the picture is these two women. None of the men wonder, none of the men are looking like this. So I'm assuming the women are in better condition. This man here looks pretty used up. He can't even look up and he's looking over like, what's, what's your problem? I don't know how to smile. This morning, I want to talk to you about grace for the race. There is a real emphasis today on the kind of grace that forgives when you flub up. Praise the Lord for that. But there's a grace that empowers you to win. How about that? You want to win, folks? Winning is the point. Now, that grace that allows you to win is the indwelling Christ. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Usain Bolt. The interesting thing about Usain Bolt he was, I don't know if he remains the fastest person on the planet, but he had never run the mile. So you don't have to be a long distance runner, but in this we are. A couple weeks ago, we had a new phenomenon on the face of planet Earth. Eliad Kipoji, a uh, Kenyan, I believe, ran a marathon in less than two hours. Now that's like running four minute, 30 second mile, one after another for two hours. Uh, most of us could not run a mile in less than five seconds, five minutes. But uh, he ran 26.2 miles at a pace of about four minutes and 30 seconds a mile for two straight hours. And it's a pretty phenomenal thing. Uh, 
How did he do it? Well, you look at his life, he constantly has people around him, even when he's training. There's always a group of people around him. And when you see the race as he ran it, he's the one in the white. He's surrounded by seven pace setters. Now, there will be over 30 pace setters. He did this just a few weeks ago. Over 30 pace setters in this race. And when he takes off, there'll be a pace car. It's flashing out a green laser in the back. I want you to notice they're not terribly far into the race. You've got two pace setters already dropping out because they can't keep the pace. And I want you to see this one down here getting ready to go in. As a matter of fact, there's a man with his hand on his back and he's going to shove him out into the race. So he's going to be one of those 36 plus racers. Now, you're looking at all those pace setters. You cannot even see Iliad Kachogi, but he's there. You want to see where he's at? This is where he's at. He's taking advantage of what this uh, professional exercise physiologist says is draft. And you say, for a runner? Yes, for a runner. Those seven men, or looks like six or five in that picture, they're forming a V, and you can't see him from straight on, but he's actually getting a little bit of draft. And the exercise physiologist says it might only be 1%, but you multiply that over 26 miles, and it really adds up. So he's got all of these pace setters, and he's running on a flat course. This course has to be run back and forth 4.4 times. Now, one of the things they've learned, this is in Austria where the race was run. It was sponsored by a British uh, chemical company. On my slide, I don't actually have the turnaround down here, but you can see it's a little round turnaround here and a little round turnaround here. There's a reason for this. They've learned that racers, when they turn right, lose one second. So there's no right turn in this race, only left turning. As a matter of fact, here they come down to one of the turnarounds. It's only always going to be turning to the left, and it's going to save them just a little bit. Now, here they are at the end of the race. He's about to cross the finish line. You can see everybody that was running as a pace setter for the last little bit was celebrating with him, even though they couldn't keep up. And when he crosses the line at 1 hour, 59 minutes, 40.2 seconds, he's the first person on the face of the planet to have run a marathon in less than two hours. But the race isn't going to count as official. You want to know why? It won't count because it didn't take place in an open event. In other words, he was the only real racer. There were three dozen rotating pacemakers. So it's fine to run a marathon with pacemakers, but they have to stay in the whole race. And then the new phrase made it into my mindset. There is potential discussion, by some at least, of technological doping. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, I didn't realize this, but for the swimmers in the Olympics a few years back, they were wearing swimming suits that had a technological advantage, and those swimming suits got banned. As for Eliad, he was wearing a certain shoe that had a carbon plate in the bottom of it, and the engineers had designed it as such to where supposedly when he came down on the shoe, the carbon plate would give him a little bump, a little push. You can get that shoe now. It's available. I don't know that it was before he ran the race, but it is available now if you have $250. So you better really like to run if you're going to buy that kind of shoe. But racing has captured our attention through the years. It used to be that running a four-minute mile was the mark that needed to be broken. This is a picture in 1954 in Oxford, England. And the tall man in the middle is uh, William Bannister. 
and he will be running to break the four-minute mile. Uh, let's follow the, the byline here. It says, from the start, teammate Chris Brasher, so he's the one in the front, is going to be his pacemaker. He sets a grueling pace with Bannister hot on his heels. But Chris Chataway is behind him waiting to take over. So Bannister has his own, Roger Bannister, I said William. Uh, Roger Bannister has his own pace setters too. They will both finish the race. But the interesting thing is neither one of them are really milers, but they're willing to help their friend. And for over half a mile, Brasher, whose real role is a steeplechaser, is going to keep his pace up. Eventually, Bannister's going to overtake them. He's going to cross the finish line. Everybody's excited. This is another world-making moment. Here are his two friends. And as he crosses the finish line in just under four minutes, he becomes one of the most famous people on the earth. Now, one of the first things we learn about the race is that you have to gather with your friends to win it. Whether it's Bannister or Kipchoge, you need people running the race with you. If you don't have people pacing with you, if you don't have the encouragement, if you don't have the camaraderie, if you don't have the challenge, running with other people allows you to run farther. You have to gather. And the Bible is telling us that in the race we're running, we have to do the same thing. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more so, as you see the day drawing near. Now, we, we, I would say that this is probably, in 21st century Adventism, this is probably the most unobeyed commandment in the New Testament. Now, I want you all to think about it. You're not going to gather unless there's something in it for you. But God never said that's why you gather. Sometimes you gather like those guys forming that V so that the guy behind you can do what he's gifted to do. Amen. Gathering is for the going forward of God's church. And when we don't gather, we don't make progress. But I know how busy everyone is. We're so busy that adding one more thing into our life isn't going to work. And I'm going to tell you, you're exactly right. You add one more thing into your life and it's not going to work. So I'm going to tell you in a moment or two when I'm done with this point, I'm going to tell you what you're going to need to do so that you can gather. But I want to tell you, when they run marathons, open event marathons, they have people, for those of you that never run in a marathon, who carry a stick with a big placard on the top and all it'll say is 3.30 or 4 colon zero zero. It's you knowing which group to get into. If you want to finish that marathon in four hours or if you want to finish it in three and a half, you've got to run with these people. Gathering is God's ordained means for getting us ready for the last lap of the race. And by the way, friends, it's coming. We cannot keep talking about the signs multiplying and keep acting like they're not. That is a cognitive dissonance. It's a spiritual dissonance. We're saying one thing. God says, you know, with their lips they, they honor me, but their hearts are from, far from me, and we do something else. So the other day, I said this at prayer meeting, I said it in the first service, Pastor Joe paid me a compliment without paying me a compliment. He didn't know he was. But when, when he summarized one of the philosophies of my pastoral life, I went away feeling pretty good about it. He said something like this. He said, man, you are just relentless about gathering the people. And I said, you bet I am. The Bible has told us how to win. I don't have to be superstar uh, pastor to do this. I just have to follow the plan. And if I follow the plan, the amazing thing is what builds into this group is called synergy. 
Do you know what synergy is? Synergy is the energy the group gets from each other. And you can't get it on your own. I'm going to show you another race in just a little bit where Roger Bannister races against an Australian man. The Australian man loses and his, his explanation of losing is that he ran as a lone wolf. Now, I want to talk to the people watching on the internet as well. It's fine for you to watch on the internet, but you need to go to your own church. And you want to watch this on the internet? Watch it after you've been to your own church. We're glad for all of our viewers and subscribers. But it's not to replace what you can give and what you can get. What you can be blessed in and what you can bless by through being there in your presence. Forsaking our own assembling. Everybody else gathers. They gather at the bar. They gather at the racetrack. They gather at the football field. They gather at the soccer field. Sometimes they gather in the study carol. The world gathers because it enjoys its gathering. The devil doesn't want us to enjoy gathering with each other. And in this age of isolation, people forget it takes work to grow relationships. You're not going to feel comfortable with me right away in the beginning. But the more you, time you spend with me in service and worship, whether we're eating a meal with each other or whatever, eventually I'm woven into the fabric of your support group and you into mine. But we have to gather as inconvenient as it is, we have to keep gathering. God is calling us together. This is why the spirit of prophecy will tell us to press together. It's simple. Spirit of prophecy lines it out. God has a method for creating unity. Check me out. Research it. It's very, very simple. Just get together. Just get together. So we're here today. So if I had my slide up, okay, let's go back to my first slide. Three, 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 zero, five. My guess is that there are a lot of people with me right now who, who their slide ought to say 0, 0, 0, 0, 3 because they spent three hours here at church today. And that's the extent of their training. Now, it would be nice if every day in our life there was time set aside to be with God. I make it a priority. I'm calling you to make it a priority. Amen. But when we come up to our Wednesday evening, whether it's an evangelistic series or a prayer meeting, that's one of those longer runs. And when it comes to Sabbath school, that's one of those longer runs. You need to be in the Sabbath school, friends. You're going to make friends in the Sabbath school. You're going to learn something new. I sat in this prayer meeting last Wednesday night over here on this side. And I want to tell you, I had my phone out the whole time. Oh, pastor, tisk tisk on you, except for one thing. I had so many thoughts, good thoughts, blessed thoughts, flowing into my mind from just being at that meeting. I might have come away with six sermons from one meeting. Now, I don't know when I'll preach them, but I've got them all in my phone. I keep an extensive set of notes in my phone, and I want to tell you, I was taking notes the whole time. Friends, it's simple. Come be there. Because you see, the place is here. The time is now. The race is on. All of these men running together make it possible for this man to run. And I don't know, I want to tell you, I told somebody the other day, I'm, my, I'm most effective as a preacher in my own church. It's true. You folks, you folks for me are like these guys right here. I, I preach my best right here with all of you. Could you say amen? amen? 
I'll say amen. I love being here with my church family. You encourage me. But we need to do this for each other. The second thing you got to do is you got to give. Ah, what you got to do? You got to give some stuff up. You want to run the race? You got to give some stuff up. Listen, after you've gone out and run 10 miles and someone holds a donut out to you, you're not likely to say, yeah, I want to, I want to carry that for 10 miles. Put it right here. You know, the truth of the matter is, all those crinkly bags and all those aluminum cans and bottles with that bubbly water that's loaded with sugar, what you start saying to yourself is, I don't want that. I like how I'm feeling. And I don't want to weigh myself down and put extra pounds on. And I don't want to treat my body like that. And the farther you get into race preparation, every time, there is a point in time, I promise you, after a while, it's like, oh, how far have I gone? Five miles? Oh, that's nothing. Let's keep going. There is a point in time when you stick with it, but you've got to give some things up. As we near the close of time, the demarcation between the children of light and the children of darkness will be what? What's the phrase? More and more. More and more. More and more. Mm. More and more what? More and more decided. They will become more and more at variance. This difference is expressed in the words of Christ. Born again, created anew, dead to the world and alive to Christ. Listen, for me to run in a race, I have to withdraw my affections from staying up late, eating the wrong things, letting my schedule get too crowded. I cut things out so I can make a priority of crossing the finish line. Folks, in the Adventist church, in the name of grace, we've been coming more and more like the world. This is a problem. I am so thankful when I stumble, when I sin, when I do what's wrong, there's a God there to pick me up. The Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. The Lord upholds him with his hands. But I want to tell you something. I want Jesus to be my pace setter. And I want to run with him. I don't want to become more and more like the world. But if I set up the idols of the world in the temple of my mind, it'll happen automatically. Which is why you need to be careful with your phones and your computers. We're not to be more and more like the world. When I drive between here and Grand Rapids, great hub of Reformed Church and, and conservative Christianity, and I turn on the radio, the music I listen to is worse than the music I used to listen to that was blasting off WLS when it was an AM rock and roll station back in the 80s and the 90s. So much of our music we call Christian is more and more like the world. It is not more and more at variance with the world. Our dress, our diet, our entertainment, our money, our speech, it's all become beautifully, wonderfully different. Don't be embarrassed, friends. Do you know how good it feels to cross the finish line? <laughs> I want to tell you, you don't have to be apologizing to everybody who doesn't make it who says, oh, I don't like how you're living. I don't like how you're running. I don't like how you're prioritizing finishing the race. And you can say, friend, didn't we start to finish? This is how it works, friends. We're going to have to give some things up. We're placed on trial in this world. Does that trouble you? The angels are looking. They're also helping. But we're placed on trial to determine our fitness for the future life. No one can enter heaven whose characters are defiled by the foul blot of selfishness. 
Therefore, God tests us here by committing to us temporal possessions that we, that our use of these may show whether we can be entrusted with eternal riches. I see our teachers in different places around the congregation today. You know, they gave out their report cards just recently. If we had a report card here at church, what kind of report would it be if the treasurer sat down and said, all right, I need to grade this person. Hmm. I want to give them a good grade, but what's written in my ledger is this, this, and this. Do you know, friends, the Bible does say that where your treasure is, your heart would be. Have any of you ever read that? Okay. And do you know that running a race requires sacrifice and it's hard? Do you know the first time you go out and you try to run a mile and your lungs are burning and your heart's pounding and the sweat's pouring off you? And when you get done running the mile, you say, oh, this isn't never going to work. You know you have to go back out the next day and do it. It's not my job. Hear me carefully. It's not my job to tell you it's going to be easy. It's not my job to tell you you can't do it. It's not my job to say you shouldn't try. I told you I was going to preach a sermon on how to make money. My wife wanted me to vet all of the... She's not in here right now. She's helping fix the food. She came to first service. I could tell you things she wouldn't want me to tell you, but she could get online and watch, so I won't. But <laughs> I'm going to tell you a few of the things I do. This was not in the first service. You want to save money? Number one, when I was a college student working at the dairy and on grounds making $400 a month as a young newlywed, God provided us a little house we lived in for $75. We took our $400 and we returned to $40 a tithe and $20 of offering every week. That's 10% that was God's. It wasn't mine to keep. And that was 5% I decided, we decided to give. And all the money I worked on Saturday when I had to feed the cows, we gave that to God too. So I wouldn't get confused about whether or not I should be in church or be making money. The cows did have to be fed. But since then, I've picked up on some habits. I had a professor over here, Carl Kaufman. Some of you may have remembered Carl Kaufman, godly man, head of the religion department. He put me onto something. He told me how when he'd go to the store or when he found a place to buy something in bulk and it saved money, he'd do it. I picked up on that. I do that. This is one little aside. So, you know, all those little foaming um, soap things you have, when they came up with the foaming soap, the soap companies made a bundle of money because the foaming soap is really nothing than the old soap watered down about four times. No, I'm telling you the truth. So my dad loves to go to Bath and Body Works. And recently my niece, I don't know if she's here today, but my niece came up to my house this week and she had this big box. And there must have been two dozen Bath and Body Works foaming soap things in there. Man, I might be able to go 10 years on this stuff because down in my basement, I've got a jug of that old thick, you know, pump it and it comes out in a gel. That's about 10 times more soap than you need, by the way. And I take that soap and I put one part of the thick soap in a gallon jug and I put three parts of water in there and I mix it up. And then when my soap thing, my foaming soap empties, I fill it back up. As a matter of fact, just a week or two, I went, I've got a lot of tricks like this I'll share, but I need to get permission from my wife, all right? So there's a way to do this. I'm saving money. YouTube, man, you don't know how to work on your car? 
good news. You don't have to go to a Chilton manual. Go to YouTube. They'll show you how to remove every nut and bolt and put it back together. And you can save money. Just be safe. Worst case scenario, call one of the men, could be women, don't know any right now, but call one of the men in this church. There are lots of men in this church that are gurus with their hands. This is the part of going together, friends. You've got to gather. Then you've got to give. But there's a way to do it. It might be that I have less data on my cell phone plan, give up my cable. It might be that I keep the car a little longer. I don't know what it's going to be. Eat more beans and rice. But we need to decide that we're not going to keep God at the bottom of the list anymore. Now, I made a mistake in the first service. I'm going to tell you what it was. Nobody came and told me. I said that this church had received by way of revenues, income, $10.5 million. That was a mistake. You put all of you together with the first service, and all together you made $15 million. You say, Pastor, how do you know? Well, you made more than that because there's some that don't return tithe. Because $1.5 million was turned in as tithe here last year. That's a lot of money, friends. This one church gives more money than all of the El Salvadorian Union. This one church... This one church with a thousand members has the lifting power of more than 200,000 people in El Salvador. I want you to think about this. Now, there is a problem. There are a bunch of people that are obviously not being faithful to God in their offerings. They didn't learn what I learned as a college student. Be systematic with your income. Not just your tithe. God says you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. If this church only gave 3% of that $15 million, only three. Now, by the way, we recommend four to five, and there are some people that give a lot more than that, which is why we're in a good posture as we are. If you only gave 3%, this church would end the year with a $50,000 surplus over what we budgeted. But you look at that thermometer on the back of the tithe, on the back of the bulletin, I'm telling you about half of what we got to make up is going to come in anyway, but the other half, we got to make it up, friends. We got to make it to budget. You know why? Because almost everything this church does is paid for out of that budget. These kids that get aid to go to school, you know where it comes from? It comes out of that budget. All these evangelistic meetings we did, you know where that money comes from? Comes out of that budget. Nebuchadnezzar standing up in our parking lot came out of that budget. Those kids in Benton Harbor we helped that were coming to Andrews University to get that math tutoring came out of that budget. I'll tell you, when just about everything we do in this church comes out of that budget, and I was tempted, Lord, do I need to sell them on it? Do I need to get a neat project so they'll give? No, I can't do that. I have to teach you to be systematic givers. Because if I don't teach you to be systematic givers, I'll have to be a salesman to you every time and get you one over to what I want you to do. Which, by the way, is the way we work. It's, it's God's thing for me to stand up here and be the prompter. But I've got to teach you how to run the race. Because some of you, when it comes to giving, it's zero, 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 and a little bit better than zero on Sabbath for giving. It isn't going to work. Now, I want to affirm this church. 
This church has been growing in its giving, so much so that when Dr. Vine stood up here not too long ago, he talked about a robust budget. Daniel 11 seminar, you know how it was paid for? It's paid for out of the combined budget. Set that thermometer on the back. We got to make it, and we can make it. Truth of the matter is, it's just all of us going to have to do a little more, and some of us need to make permanent changes. Oh, 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 I know I'm stepping on everybody's toes. Oh, pastor, all the statistics says don't talk about money. Oh, my. I'm here to tell you, I am a physician of the soul, and I know that it's the money, once it breaks loose, that's going to take your affection from the things of the world over to the things of Christ. And if I didn't talk about money, I'd be derelict of duty, I'd be a malpractitioner, and you wouldn't make it through the race. I want to tell you, friends, day's coming when your money will be worth zero. And when it's worth zero, you're going to have to have some chapters in your past that said, when I took a step to start giving offering, look what happened. God stepped in. Do you think God's not going to do that now? You bet He's going to do it. This is a way of diminishing selfishness and increasing confidence in His ability to provide. But you're going to have to choose to go ahead of what common sense says. So I'm appealing to you. The wants of the cause will continually decrease as we near the close of time. Is that what it says? No. The wants of the cause will continually increase. Now listen, if we make it to budget, there's some really exciting things that can happen. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to tell you, I've already talked about this with the board. And I've already talked about it with the leadership team, which is about three, well, twice as big as the board. So it won't come as news to a lot of you. But we had a donation to this church, which paved the way for buying some of this equipment that Pastor Michael and Pastor Jonathan are using to do some of this videography. And in that donation, there was a part of it that was going to go to keep Pastor Michael with us longer than we would have him otherwise. His internship ends this month. Another businessman pledged that he would make up part of keeping Pastor Michael with us. God's already opening the door for it to happen. All we got to do is get to budget. We could probably keep him for a year or so, maybe more. Maybe you can be a permanent part of us, Michael. Would you like that? He's laughing. He didn't say amen. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Give him the money anyway, folks, all right? Paul says, since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, in love, in the love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I know a lady. She owned four houses. Every house was probably worth three, easily worth $300,000, some of them six and 700000 Her husband died. She's a woman of means. I want to tell you to date, in the last five years, she has sold she might be in the process of selling the last one. She has sold every house with one express purpose. She's moving into a little house so that she can advance God's work. Amen. I want to talk to you, friends. The first Christian church had not the privileges and opportunities we have. They were a poor people, but they felt the power of truth, and the object before them was sufficient. That is a knowledge of truth to all the world to lead to, to invest all. They felt that the salvation or the loss of the world depended upon their instrumentality. 
Yes, God's going to do the work. Yes, God uses us. It's a partnership. We're to work like no prayer will help, and we're to pray like no work could help. They cast in their all and held themselves in readiness to go or to come at the Lord's bidding. We profess to be governed by the same principles, to be influenced by the same spirit, but instead of giving all for Christ, many have taken the golden wedge, think Achan now, and the goodly Babylonian garment, and we've hid them in the camp. Listen, friends, work all you can, make all you can, save all you can so you can give all you can, but there will be a generation in which God will say, get your money out of that account because things are closing up. Get your money out of that account because things are expanding. May they expand gloriously before they close up and may we be the instrumentality by which they do it. Businessmen, I want to talk to the businessmen especially right now. If you're a businessman, it's your purpose to serve humanity and to make money. Don't be embarrassed about it. Don't be overreaching. Be a Christian in your business transactions. But gentlemen, ladies, business people, God is looking to you to fund the treasury of his church disproportionately to everybody else. It doesn't mean more sacrifice for you. It doesn't mean less. What it means is, is that you operate knowing that Christ is your business partner. This is what the book Education says. Christ wants to prosper you. If you'll work with economy, thrift, honesty, and frugality, if you'll be a man or a woman of integrity in your business dealings, all of heaven wants to cooperate with you so that we can be the instrumentality. Because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. When we come down to the component of giving, I want to make a powerful point. Back in 1954, Roger Bannister was in a race, in the Great Empire race. He ran the mile in May of 1954. He ran it with just six-tenths of a second separating him from four minutes. But John Landy from Australia, a month later, beat Bannister's record by a one and a half seconds, which is like a football field when it comes to the significance because fractions of a second make a huge difference. In this race, it was going to be four equal laps around the track. These were held in Vancouver, and it was probably one of the most momentous athletic events in that decade. This is actually on the list of the Commonwealth of England. This is the most important, significant sports event. This is how it's listed. They called it the Miracle Mile. And in this race, John Landy was fast, and he had a plan. Run fast out of the gate. He would tire out all of his competitors, and in this race, he thought, I'll get Bannister too, and he knew he was faster. Bannister had a cold and wasn't feeling his best, and Landy had stepped on a photographer's light bulb and cut his foot, so he had stitches in his foot. He never blamed that for losing. But they went three times around, and on the last leg, Bannister, who had been trailing sometimes by many yards, had in his mind, he imagined he had a rope tied to him, and he was just reeling him in. Now, Bannister's approach was to put a little bit on the end. And Bannister, on the third lap, Landy ran it in over 60 seconds, 60.3. Bannister ran it in 59. Bannister was closing in on him, and this picture becomes exceptionally famous. This is a colorized version of it. Landy didn't know where Bannister was. And he looks to the inside. He looks back. And Bannister is coming around him on the right. And the rest, my friends, is history. It is so significant in the minds of the British Commonwealth that they formed a bronze statue of it. And it's setting, it was sitting outside the Empire Stadium, but they moved it to the Pacific National Exhibition. 
so significant in the psyche of that generation of racers that they spent the money to show you what happens when you don't keep your eye on the prize. And it reminded me powerfully of this. Remember, Jesus said, don't think your life consists in the abundance of your possessions. And then we have that super duper little verse in the Bible. Do you know what Luke 17, 32 says? It says, remember Lot's wife. I want to tell you a secret, friends. None of you think that you have any idols in this world. If I took a poll, an anonymous poll, if I had Survey Monkey up, 95% of you would say you don't love the world. I know. You say, how do you know? Because anytime I've talked to anybody about having an idol, they always deny it. Always, always, always. Anytime you talk to somebody about starting to enjoy another sex's company too much, you know, somebody at work, they always deny it. Because when people drift, they don't see that they're coming off course. And unless somebody bumps into them and says, hey, you're getting off course. And do they usually say, oh, thank you for telling me I'm about to run my car into the mud. No, they don't say that. They say, how dare you tell me how to drive? Get out of my way. But I'm here to tell you, friends, we don't drift into the world saying, oh, I'm just going to fall asleep at the wheel and run off into a good life. Oh, I'm stuck in the mud out here with all my money and my nice house. The third thing you have to do is you have to go. Now, there's two things that comprise Adventism. Message and mission. Let's see if the next slide's any better. Something went wrong in my slides. But nonetheless, get the point. What really looks good, though, is this. It comes into focus. How focused are you on advancing God's cause? Are you willing to go anywhere? Are you willing to go to Benton Harbor, down to the trailer park, maybe? Are you willing to go to Brazil or El Salvador? Are you willing to go down to Indianapolis and help out? Are you willing to go to the neighbor next door who needs a little food? Colin Welland wrote the, he was the screenwriter for the story Chariots of Fire. He had written this amazing story. It's a true story. And as he was writing, he had a name for the story. This is Eric Little. He was the Scotsman who went on to be a missionary in China. He won gold in the 400 meters. Behind him here is Harold Abrams. Of course, this is from the movie. These aren't the actual people. He won the 100-yard dash. It was a great year, I believe 1924 in Paris. Quite a compelling story. As a matter of fact, I wish we could listen to uh, Van Gelis's, uh version of it, Chariots of Fire, the music. But he was looking for a name, and he entitled this in his mind. He had called this movie Runners. That'll sell at the box office, won't it? Runners. And what he did, he was sitting at home one night, and he was watching the British Broadcasting Corporation, and on came a program called Songs of Praise. Now, I'm going to tell you something most people don't know. Great Britain does not have an official national anthem. You say, oh, pastor, that's not true. It's God Save the Queen. No, it's not. That's the, that's the accepted one. But the truth of the matter is, Great Britain actually has two songs, one which is the unofficial national anthem and the other which is a little less unofficial and more like the national anthem. God Save the Queen. You know, sweet land of liberty. We made our own version of it here in America. But their words are different, very religious. But this song where I'm about to put the words up, this is a song almost every Great Britainer knows. And it's at the end of the film, Chariots of Fire. You'll have to watch it. Get online and listen to this song. Almost every Great Britainer knows it. Why am I putting up? The words are so religious. Watch. 
William Blake wrote this song. And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountain green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here amid these satanic mills? I don't know why it's not on there, but that's a reference to the industrial revolution. Good thing my mind is working. Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds unfold. This is working out better than I thought. The next phrase says, and I want you to see Colin Welland watching this. He's listening to this song, watching it. It says, bring me my bow, O clouds unfold. Bring me my, any guesses? Chariots of fire. I will not cease from mental flight nor fail to hold the sword till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. And he jumped up and he said to his wife, whose name was Patricia, I've got it, I've got it, it's chariots of fire. Quite an amazing moment. And this is what we know it as. If you've not seen it, most of it is very, very well worth watching. It is a rated G film. Paul will say, not that I've already attained or I'm already per perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But the one thing I do, friends, emblazon that phrase in your mind. Get your kids out. Bring them to the spiritual programming. They won't die. They might be bored, but they might get interested too. Could you say amen? amen. Bring them out. Let them say in their young hearts and minds, this one thing I do. I'm planning to go to heaven. I'm gathering, I'm giving, and I'm going. The race, the place, and the pace. I'm planning to be there. And I'm going to be like Paul, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on. I'm going to finish toward the goal, the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And Paul can't leave this metaphor alone. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself shall give me. And not just me, everyone. Therefore, go and make disciples, Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, the finish line is not far away. So let's bring this sermon in for a landing. Look at this guy. This race happened at Texas A&M this year. And I want to tell you, he won. But the reason I have it up is because I need you to know he wanted to win badly. Because when you land on those tracks with all that skin exposed, you talk about road rash, he got it. But you know the neatest part about this story? is his name. This guy. Here's his name. Can you believe this? His name is Infinite. You heard me. His name is Infinite Tucker. He was tuckered out after that race too, I'll assure you. Infinite Tucker, earlier this year, won this race, 400 meters. And this is how he did it. Get online and watch the video. And you know what, friends? Someday, I'm planning to be in heaven 
I know I'm going to get a new name. And somebody's going to walk up to me and they're going to say, what's your name? I'm going to let infinite come to my mind. I'm going to say, my name is Immortal Kelly. Sounds good to me. I don't think I'll call myself infinite, although immortal is close. My name's Immortal Kelly because I ran the race, friends. The race, the pace, the place. I gathered, I gave, and I went. I'm going to gather, give, and go. Friends, we can't talk about May 14, 2020 when the Pope's gathering all of the young religious leaders and leaders in sports and leaders in politics. We can't talk out of this side of our mouth. Oh, Jesus is coming really soon. Lord, I won't be changing. It doesn't work that way. I've never met a coach that made the trainee feel better in the moment. But I've met many a coach for whom the trainer is hugged to death at the end of the finish line. Friends, what are you going to change? Some of you may be absolutely too busy with church stuff. There's a short list there. But how many Seventh-day Adventists listening to me online or in this auditorium or in the first service relate to the church like a country club, not a gymnasium in training to cross the finish line? Chariots, bring me my chariot of fire. I'm going to go. Does anybody want to go with me?